0: 20
1: square blocks. 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 20 square blocks. 20 square blocks.
0: I was born in Blacktown Hospital. I grew up on a water slide. Though my soul be eternal, my life was short. Cut down by a practical joker. In Mount Druid they say, you can swim all day. But ma, I don't want to slide no more.
1: Andrew Sutherland is a multi-talented individual yet possesses a quiet unassuming demeanour. As a poet, playwright, author, singer and lecturer, he has spent the last two decades away from Ballarat, dedicating his time to teaching in China. Now he has returned to his hometown and tells me about the wealth of experience and insights he's learned along the way. My name's Andrew Sutherland,
0: and um, I grew up in Barignon from the age of 12 onwards, and then I moved into Ballarat for a few years there, so I'm a, I'm a kind of, no one's ever really from Ballarat unless you're, you're born in the mud of Lake Wendouree, or, the, you know, the fairy grass that's burning. Uh, but, yeah, I spent most of my life here, and returned after a long time being away to be back in Ballarat, so, yeah, that's me. Right, all
1: right, well, thanks very much for being here, and then... <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a, you know, proud father of two little girls, and I've uh, been married. Work at the university in international admissions. Right, right. Yeah, yeah.
1: The uni you're actually working at now, you went to. Yeah, that's right.
0: For a bachelor of arts, I was pretty half half-baked about getting into university. I applied, put my form in when I was in year twelve, and got into Bendigo because I put the number wrong <laughs> of application. <laughs> And so then I, I called Ballarat and they said, yeah, yeah, we can change that and we can get you in Ballarat. Um, I was really lucky as, as a high school student because I went to Mount Clear Secondary College, um, which, you know, didn't always have the greatest reputation. Um, and the uniforms, they used to be brown, like poo brown uniforms. So the brand didn't really help the kind of the school's image that well. But I had a teacher in, I think it was grade nine for literature who just gave me some positive words he just sort of said great you're doing a really good job here and just that I'll never forget that influence the guy's name was Mr Dixon he's a he's a bird watcher he probably passed away by now but really soft-spoken but quiet man who just gave me the encouragement at the right time in my life to to believe that I could that I could you know write essays and write so that's sort of something that's carried you know that little moment it changed the course of my life, and when it when it came down to it, in, in uh, university, doing, you know, literature a major, I did a lit psych major. It was like something that was really really powerful for me, and it was you know I, I believed I could do it because of that 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 teacher. In my university, I was pretty. I think I, I, there was a sort of parallel conversation halfway through my first semester. Mm-hmm. I was doing Introduction to Film, and the the lecturer was Peter Temple, who's a pretty well-known crime writer. He, he went on to become quite well-regarded. He had TV series and movies made about his books, but he was a lecturer at the time. And I was smashing out my essays the night before, and I, I can't remember what it was about, but I sketched out something that I handed in. And then we were in a lecture hall. This This guy read my essay out. And he said, this is the worst garbage I've ever, <laughs> I've ever seen. And he didn't say my name, but I shrank to the size of a pea in that, in that room. And I was mortified. And from that point, I was like, I'm never going to be in that position again. So, you know, in later, in later life, when I was a teacher, I always remembered that moment and, and thought, I never want to put a student of mine into that position as well. So, mm. but... Uh, I mean, it's a pretty of a tangled story. I finished my university, flying colours, got the first Australian Postgraduate Research Award, got allocated an APRA scholarship, and I got the first one. What is the scholarship? Australian Postgraduate Research Award. And they didn't give it to everyone? No, no, there's only one. The first one yeah. that Ballarat was allocated as it got university status. This scholarship
1: paid for what? Uh,
0: it was more, I mean, basically every three months, I would get this fat check in my bank account.
1: For doing what
0: to write a thesis and for my master's in hindsight, it was a little bit too much too young, so I was basically went from being a twenty year old university undergraduate to being a twenty one year old um, sessional lecturer doing a master 's thesis at my home university, um, which which would be great if I'd finished my thesis, but I spent three years nerdling away at that thing until finally I, I i just just dropped out i uh didn't didn't complete it andrew yeah i know it's pretty disappointing in that time i did a lot of stuff like you know I wrote plays i you know did and music. a playwright yeah well you know i wouldn't say i was a playwright but why we, not i did four plays there we go so we did it we did a play at the old hot gossip nightclub and it was kind of cool because we turned it into a kind of reality tv where we had pre-recorded screens
1: what year is this i'm trying to this was like
0: 1996 are you talking about reality shows they didn't even exist that didn't exist that was kind of like we're crossing live now we filmed like a you know a dinner and so the boy was like you know his dad's like giving him a hard time about the date and then it was like back to the studio and like now they're going to the date and then back to the... So it's pre-recorded vision of this this yeah. date happening supposedly in real time. Um, we did another play at the Fine Art Gallery called The Apple of Discord which was a play on the idea of the internet. So we took the play Trullis and Cressida which is a lesser known Shakespeare mm, yeah. play but we did it like a kind of... Um, one of the characters was the internet, so it was like this robot who was like trying to bring them together. So the character in the play is a guy called Kent Pandarus, who's like the guy trying to kind of matchmake them and being the mediator. But we turned that into a kind of a, a, a disembodied speaker, you know, speaking the lines. Again, it was in the Fine Art Gallery. We had three D images projected onto the walls, and you know, different forms of sculpture. It had to be seen to be believed really. We managed by a mere 10 year catnap. Something about a prophecy about me and how it was always going to be this way. Something about the apple of discord and multi-dimensional digital suggestional juxtapositions with Shakespeare. And one of the um, scenes was played out on IRC chat. So we we had the chats Projected onto the wall. Yeah, right. We had one character typing in the lines. It live. At a, live. And then, so our characters were typing in the lines from Shakespeare. And other people were just sort of randoms sort were of like, what are you talking about? You know, and this kind of... Yeah. So it was like a real-time crowd experience. Ah, uh-huh, right, right. With people heckling each other. It was sensational. We had the fine art gallery evening. I mean, it's... Again, I could say that I <laughs> I messed up by blowing my scholarship and not getting anything done on my thesis or not getting it finished. But those things – I mean, I also did a lot of poetry
1: as well. So that was what I actually moved on to next. So when you finished being a playwright because – You didn't want to do it anymore. You had too many bad experiences. The drugs got to you. I don't know. I'm making making this up. I don't know what it is. No, no. (laughs) Why did uh, you stop being a playwright? It was more like just
0: something that we did. I mean, the the Apple of Discord show was just massively traumatic in terms of pulling all the pieces together. Okay. But, I I mean, it was really quite messy. Like, um, I mean, the end of that, I was still doing my thesis, teaching as a 21-year-old, 22-year-old, with people that were the same age as me, basically, it was great but i wasn't i wasn't getting my thesis finished so that kind of built up and eventually i i actually you know i I self-harmed pretty bad in 1997 um so that was kind of the end of my academic career um and you know fortunately it wasn't anything ending of more than that but uh I, i it could have been yeah i mean i mean it was a yeah, we were doing a music video and everyone was dressed up in like um, outrageous uh, kind of medieval slash, I, I think, I don't know what the theme of the music video was, but um, I was just a part of it. And yeah, it was in the cellar at, uh, what's that place down near the train station? The Provincial Hotel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so I, I just, you know, had too much to drink and got really upset and just slashed my wrist to the pieces on a broken mirror and Jesus. then uh fortunately just walked up to the hospital and still wearing my um costume with, with the guy dressed as a fairy oh, and so they they were like oh i had a bit of a show have you and they stitched me up and i went left again so yeah and that from that point it was like well i guess i better make a make a bit of a change here because uh this is you know not going to work out One night I had an epiphany and I was watching The People vs. Larry Flint, the, you know, the movie about Hustler or whatever. Not to go into too much detail, but there's a scene where, the, you know, Woody Harrelson, Larry Flint is pointing at a, a, a naked woman and saying, that's what people want to see. And I'm like, what is the thing that people want to see that will, will capture people's attention? And I decided that I would write a book and wrap it in brown paper and twine. So it was like a taboo thing and then actually make that my thing. Like, you know, sell that book and just took it out on the street. And I, I it was instantly popular. Did um, Peter Temple buy one? I never really had the nerve to go up to Peter Temple <laughs> and ask him if he wanted one. But he's an author, and, you know, so am I in a way. I kept stats of the number of books I sold, so I know that in the first week I sold 300 of these things. Cheapest, Yeah so it's just it went bananas so I made I think I made 60 of them gone gone in a day so I gathered all this little money and went back to the printer and I want to make some more I sold them again
1: where were you selling these things
0: so on the street at the pub you know yeah, yeah, I do Ballarat. poetry readings yeah Ballarat Adelaide you do a reading it was just like <clears throat> ended up making six of these over the next three years yeah, they, they sold like hotcakes. I went to my dad and I said to, in Bunanyong, he lived there at the time, and I said, Dad, I've, I've got this great thing, I, but I need to borrow 200 bucks so I can print bulk. No. So I went back in the Ballarat, went to Cafe Bebo, where it was one of my haunts, and some some fellow was there. Um, and I said, look, I just wouldn't believe it. I just spoke to my dad. And he said, how much do you need? Gave me the money. Went and did it. Paid him back 2 weeks later i was completely involved in it i was really excited about this thing and as you know getting me around and so on but this kind of it kind of grew and grew so i was started to get invited to to readings and you know be the feature and go to adelaide because i've got a, a gig at the show where i could actually you know that that's where it kind of like grew I also started putting it in the bookstores, so I had readings, so a polyester book on, on Brunswick Street, back when Brunswick Street was a, was the place to be. But it was like a kind of edgy comic scene, sort of edgy literature. And they got raided by the Passion Police, and that sort of put them on the map. So the next thing, some guy from um, Monash Library came and bought the books, called me. I went to Monash to, to, to sell him books to put in their collection right and so you know I went to Newcastle Young Writers Festival this is all in like you know, going through 2000-2001 I started doing writing um, workshops at different places but then, and then from there that also segued into working for the City Council doing the youth magazine for, as part of the work for the dolls teach them how to format and make a magazine and write and so on stepmother passed away of cancer uh, it was really tragic really really terrible moment in in my life Um in in, in, in all the life of my family and when I spoke to her as, as she was you know as she was um you know as she was as she was dying like, cancer is a terrible thing I asked her what 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 I could do and then she said you know look after your dad just make sure your dad's okay and and, and she, she she died so I moved out to Bunanyong just so I could be, you know, around my dad. And then I lived in, in a house around the corner from my dad. He, he was a pretty hard guy to get along with, but he'd be around my house all the time. And it became like a kind of Dad and Dave situation.
1: We now present the first episode of Dad and Dave, a human story of two.
0: Like, I had to take the door handle off my bedroom door because he'd come around and be like, what are you still doing in bed? It's like nine o'clock already. Well, one time I didn't take the door handle off, but I had a lady friend visiting me and the door handle, so you saw the door handle wasn't on the door, so he was just pushing the door open and he's like caught a glimpse of this strange uh, double-backed beast happening in the room and like retreated. Um, I mean, at that time I was probably 32 or something like that. And so I was a bit old to be the kind of, pesky teenage son of the bossy dad. So uh, her friend had been in China and she came back and she said, what are you doing here? Come to China, it's great. So it was as simple as that. I just decided to go to go there. So she said, I'll, I'll introduce you to the university I work in. And so I went. So what did you go over there to do? Um, worked at a university, worked at Ningbo Daxue in Ningbo, Ningbo city. But what were you doing? Um, oh, well, I, I thought I was going to re-energy. Well, the other thing my stepmother said was go back to uni. Like, look after your dad, go back to uni. Because, you know, I
1: let the side down so badly. But, but she meant to actually do a course, not to work. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> so when you went to uni, you went there to work, though? Yeah, I worked. Yeah. I went
0: there as a university teacher. I had the background. I arrived in 2002. I did my first term at the university. Uh, it was standard practice during semester breaks. you go and teach somewhere else to make some extra money. So I flew down to Guangzhou, a city called Chiantou, yeah, to do a summer camp. And I'm, you know... So I was doing that and, you know, met, met a policeman called uh, Handsome and, a, and another fellow called Tiger, and so they were taking me around and we were living, they we had a great time. We just showed me around, you know, those that, that were my best times in China We're like, getting, getting into the real thick of it, um, you know, going out to, you know, karaoke or karaoke so much, but, like, you know, just doing things, like, local. And then on the last night, we were supposed to go out, um, with these two fellows, I was walking back from the school to the hotel I was staying in and the streets were just chock a block with cars and the cars are winding down the windows and holding out a little plastic container and there were these dudes on the side of the road filling up these containers with vinegar like they had these big canisters of vinegar and they're like filling them up and they're exchanging some money and they're winding the window back and driving on I'm like, what's going on? I got to my house and Tiger and Handsome were supposed to be taking me out, but they came around and said, no, no, don't go out. There's a disease that's coming out of Longzhou. It's killing people. Because I said, what's wrong with the vinegar? Is there there something wrong with the vinegar? He said, no, no, people are mass buying the vinegar to heat in their houses to kill this airborne disease. And that was SARS. So this this is February, this happened. We flew back to Shanghai or Ningbo where we were living then. We told everyone, there's a disease in uh, Guangdong province. It's going to be here any minute. Chicken little, the sky is falling and everyone's like, nah, you're joking. February, no March, April, May. So we're three months after this kind of like people buying vinegar and burning vinegar in their houses, freaking out in, in Guangzhou, which is next to Hong Kong. Kind of three months later. The word's been released that there's actually a disease. that's killing the hell out of people. It's really contagious. Stay in your building. Don't go anywhere. So they closed down all sports facilities, pools, supermarkets were being emptied. Um, and then the you know, next thing, they locked down Ningbo. We had like a, a a notice on our build. All the teachers were in a building and the building had a, like a fence around it with a gate. So we would lock us in at night for our own safety. But we had a notice pinned to our door on the building saying number of deaths. It wasn't like cases, it was deaths. In the building? No, no, in the city. Oh, okay. You know, so it was like pretty tense. Every day there were a new, a new death list. I wasn't checking it too closely because I figured it would freak me out. Um, there wasn't any cases on campus, so I was pretty happy about that. But And, and the management said, got all the teachers together and said, Hey, how are you all going? If you want to leave, you can leave. No problems with your contract just just go and so half of the people left and at that point I was like I'll stay so we stayed after that point I was teaching at a I had a, I moved in with a different sort of organization where I was teaching classes to, to teenagers you know after school English and and there was a couple of kids doing a presentation the the class was about presentation English and you had to demonstrate a graph You know, use a graph in a presentation. Pretty cool. And so these two bright kids had this graph and it was like uh, a little spike and then a little down and a huge spike. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. What's this? And they said, this is SARS. It's going to come back. If we thought this was bad, wait till the next one. I'm like, oh, okay. And that was in 2004 um and when it did it it really really came
1: back i guess was there something after that bird flu
0: bird flu pig flu swine flu yeah they were they were more blips they weren't that sort of serious yeah i think there's a kind of tendency to kind of take this and go whoa, it's the next SARS and then people got a bit tired of yeah. you know winding that machine up and then when covid came i think it was still it took a while for people to get used to it um, so
1: you're you're still in china when covid happens yeah kind
0: of i was in 2019, 19 years have passed. I got married. I had two kids. My wife's from the Philippines. We, um, we were in Australia in December 2019. And, the, the, you know, the virus is escaping from Wuhan and it's getting around. And we, we jumped on a plane and flew back to China for 10 days and then flew to the Philippines for another 10 days just to visit my wife's family in this little village in the north of the Philippines. And then the news broke. Um, and within 10 days, we were like, well, oh, should we stay a little bit longer Just watch until it passes over? And then we got, they, they stopped all flights. So we were like locked in for, for 10 months in this little village in the Philippines. So what happened there? We couldn't leave the, um, the province. We couldn't leave the, the country. Uh, it, was, it was pretty like, it was pretty full on. They had like a, Australia's like, you're not coming back. Sorry, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was that. Yeah, we, um, we got there. We were there for 10 days we decided to stay for, extend for 10 more days, I think. My my company sort of said, oh yeah, you can stay there, it's fine. Um, just to, you know, till it passes over, it's will dangerous for the kids. And then the flight stopped and then we weren't going anywhere for 10 months. So what happens now? You're in the Philippines, you're stuck. It was kind of curious because all of our courses needed to be transitioned to online immediately. Good internet? Yeah, yeah well, unless there was a brownout. Um, it didn't happen that often. But yeah, I was able to keep working effectively for the 10 months, which was a blessing because I can't imagine those people whose work was just kneecapped by COVID. I mean, that would be hard to do lockdown without any income and just be kind of like waiting, hoping that your business could get back on on the ground. Like we were so, so lucky that it didn't happen to us. And the village was locked down, it was a small village. People say, Oh, the Philippines, great, it's a beach. We were in a you know, a, a, a really beat farming village. Like it it was great and lovely place, but we we became pretty um, You went to visit, you yeah. didn't go to stay. No, we, we <laughs> stayed. we stayed. I think we lived out of the suitcases for the first five months. And then we started hanging the clothes up in the wardrobe after about five or six months. Just gave up.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, well, yeah. Um Now you got kids there. Well, I mean, I have two, two daughters yep. with my wife and they were with us, so yeah, I mean it was it was it was good. It was hard and good. I mean, the the blessings. There's loads of kids in the village. They don't they don't hold back when it comes to production of humanity. So there's loads of children in the place. It's my wife's hometown. So actually it's where she was a kid. So she's kind of actually I'm experiencing her home really intimately by being there for so long. Uh, her aunt, she's, she's loads of aunts, but one of her aunts look after her when she was a child. Now that same lady is looking after my daughters, you know, in the, in 2020. So a lot of really great things. I became really close with my brother-in-law. We uh, we uh, discussed a lot of topics um, over that time over, over Red Horse and uh, Red Horse is like a, the beer over there. Pretty strong stuff. You ride the Red Horse. The hard part was being in limbo. I think that's for everyone across the world. So it's hard to, what you're going through, but actually we're all going through it together. There's a kind of there's a kind of community in that kind of suffering, of, well, uh, you know, inconvenience that I, I really I really kind of appreciated. I think the people that live through it, all of us who live through it, hopefully can, can take away that sense of like being sort of strapped to your neighbor in the same sort of predicament. I mean, we're never going to be in war. We're never going to be soldiers. We're never going to be on the front, you know, Western Front. And it's it's no comparison for the for the people that suffered through those really difficult times like war. But for for our cohort, this generation of people, we're going to have this experience, which is going to be kind of shape our identities, and hopefully in good ways. The negatives are you know, numerous. But, you know, there are some really deep positives about it, I think, to take away.
1: Thanks for listening to 20 Square Blocks.
0: If you like the show, please do the things that podcasts ask you to do,
1: like subscribe, review... And, most importantly, tell someone you know. Thanks to my guest, Andrew Something. What's your last name? Thanks to my guest, Andrew Sutherland, who is 10 blocks to the south of me. Original music by Ryan Goodwin. For more of his work, check out virtuallyryan.com.
0: Additional material written by Anne Murison. Editing by the introspective Ricky
1: Cheno. And thanks to H Studios for the use of their studios. I'm Ben Plaza and this is 20 Square Blocks.